Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 169, Back to Front. This episode of Craft Lit is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. You can visit the catalog for Knitting Out Loud at knittingoutloud.com. Also, Knit Circus Online Magazine. You can have three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun right in front of your very eyes if you go to www.knitcircus.com. The summer catalog is up and rolling. And... Holiday Travel and Craftlet take you to London, Bath, and Wales this October 2010. Go to craftlet.com to find out more. Okay, so a couple of things. Hi, I left you about four minutes ago. (laughs) In my world. And there was one thing I saved to tell you in this episode. And one thing that's new, which you probably already heard. If everything went well, there is a pre-show ad. They call it an ad. It's not selling anything except Craftlet, but uh, it should have appeared at the beginning of the show, even if all you did was think that you downloaded Craftlet. It should have kind of been inserted there. Because what's happening, and I can tell by watching the numbers, is there's a whole mess load of people who in the last three months have started listening to Craftlet. And they're listening all over the place. And some people have gone back to the very beginning and started. And some people have picked books. And some people have emailed me apologizing for picking books. And I just wanted to make sure that newcomers knew where to go to get the episodes, that it's okay not to listen to every episode. Although, you know, you'll come in in the middle of my life. But that was kind of the funny part at, at Marilyn Sheep and Wool. People would come up and ask me how my son was doing and whether he was reading yet. And of course, he's finished Harry Potter and he just went through all of the Rick Reardon books. And, you know, he's he finished The Real Meaning of Smek Day, which is a big book, in four days. His first day of summer vacation, all he could do was sit in a chair and read. So, you know, people kind of come in and out of my life at different times and my life keeps moving forward, so you may be listening to 2006, but I'm in 2010. And I don't want people to feel awkward about that. You know, it's, gosh, it's a podcast. That's one of the fabulous things. It's hard to go back and find NPR episodes from four or five years ago, or it used to be very difficult, but now it's not so bad. Um, but that's the beauty of the podcast. And I know there are some people who go, eh, not such a big fan of persuasion, but I want to keep up with what's going on with Heather. And there are other people who think, I'm really done with listening to Heather Yammer. I'm just going to, you know, skip to the chapter because I subscribe to it and the book's there. Any or all of those options are just fine. And you don't ever have to feel bad about meeting me or telling me that or apologize for that. Good Lord, life is difficult enough. We don't need to put that kind of pressure on anyone. Know what I mean? 
So that's the new news is um, that pre-roll thing is going to keep rolling. I probably will have it on there. Uh, I'll change it probably a couple more times during the year, but there will always be some kind of tag at the beginning before I announce the title of the episode, just to let people who are newcomers know what's going on. So those of you who have been around for the last four years, you can tune it out. Those of you who are new, a public service announcement for you. Yay. And the other bit of news was when I was in Los Angeles last weekend for my birthday, my extended birthday, my long drawn out. As you get older, I think it's good to draw these things out to try and make them last as old as you are. Party all year round. And I got to go and spend a weekend with my very good friend in L.A., but that also meant that there were a couple of listeners who I have been corresponding with for uh, four years. And I wasn't able to see everyone. Judith and I missed each other once again. But I was able to see Deborah and meet her husband and meet her two fabulous boys. And I'm very jealous that she has a boy who's about to be a junior in high school because that was my favorite age group. Old enough to know what they were talking about. Young enough not to be cynical. It was a lot of fun. Although, you know, the cynical. There's the cynical teenage thing but that's not real cynicism much anyway it was lovely to get to meet them but the real i mean deborah you're fabulous and all but really it's the kiviet right deborah is the one who i have talked about in the past who had knitted um her son's talit for his bar mitzvah well now son number two is coming along and he is about to have his uh big celebration and become a bar mitzvah and it's great. And she made another tallit, also using Kiviet. This time, a good chunk of it was hand-spun. And it's beautiful. I mean, the colors that he, he selected them, right, Deborah? He, I mean, the Kiviet is Kiviet colored. But then like this deep burgundy and this gorgeous blue and just spectacular. And it's so frustrating because three years ago, Oh my gosh, two years ago, I wrote an article on, on Deborah for Piecework Magazine, and they were in the middle of changing editors, I think twice, and it fell through the cracks, and then I tried to contact the woman who I'd been talking to before, and she wasn't there anymore, and they kind of just went, meh, it's not really our thing. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back, and I'm going to update it with the new Talit, I think, and um, see if I can't get that uh, that article out there somewhere else, because... It is a gorgeous, gorgeous thing that Deborah has done for her boys to, um, to have something that personal and handmade, something that will be a part of their, their life for the rest of their life. I mean, we still have my husband's great-grandfather's Talit. Uh, it's, I'm trying to remember how old it is. It's falling apart is what it is. It's uh, silk, and I don't think it was... Uh, properly cared for it was folded hard folded and then you know like at a bottom of a drawer for a really long time I don't even think it had tissue paper in between the layers and so the the folds are uh crumbling I think I should go take a look at that maybe I know somebody who can fix that perhaps I should investigate anyway so that was the real news um and I'm sure I can convince Deborah to let me Put up some pictures of the fabulous that is her handiwork so that was really fun i mean i only got to see it wasn't like we had extended time i got to see them for 20 minutes before i got on the plane but 20 minutes was better than nothing in this fast-paced crazy world that we're in and as part of this fast-paced crazy world that we're in today you 
today in my world, sorry, today in my world, you are going to get to listen to a lot more persuasion. Now, where we left off, Captain Wentworth is back in Bath. The Crofts are in Bath. Senior Elliot, Sir Walter, is being a dork. And Elizabeth is Elizabeth. Mary's funny. Isn't Mary funny when she writes letters? I love her letters. And I love the way this girl is reading the letters. She just she has a beautiful temperament when it comes to sounding like Mary. It's good. It's really good. And then there's poor Anne. And of course, we know what's going on. And we understand why Lady Russell would think that Mr. Elliot and Anne would be a good match. But of course, we also know that Captain Wentworth is secretly in love with her still. And of course, she's never gotten over him. And even if Wentworth wasn't in the picture, it sounds like she'd pass Mr. Elliot by. So we have this lovely kind of confusion happening. And this is where Jane Austen, I think, obviously Mark Twain would disagree with me, but this is where I think Jane Austen does an impressive feat. We're pretty confident we know how the book is going to end, right? Even so, the tension gets worse and worse. It was the same with Pride and Prejudice. It's the same here. Part of it is because Jane Austen is so good at communicating propriety and how how we are supposed to behave. And back in, uh, was it Pride and Prejudice? Is that Mr. Wickham? I think that's Mr. Wickham. Yes, that's Mr. Wickham. Uh, we kind of have a Wickham moment coming up, or a Wickham-esque moment coming up. But that that whole propriety thing, it, it's not... It, Jane Austen can be critical of the societal treatment of women, as, as well as like specific treatments of specific women. But, but even though she can be critical of it and point out how brutal like in the case of mrs smith how how brutal this situation can be she is a not angry at men and b not really blaming anyone and c on some level she's still she's she plays within the rules you know she's not standing up there burning her corset and saying you know women don't need me or a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle you know she's she's not that person in the same breath good behavior proper behavior is rewarded in Jane Austen's world and I think that that makes her a very unique writer and I think perhaps it's the the mannered nature or the the proper behavior, the respect of those things, that perhaps is what Mark Twain um, was irked by. Because, you know, Mark Twain's most famous heroes are the ones who broke the rules, not because they were bad people, but because the rules were wrong. And I've, you know, we've talked about it before with Huck Finn, that Huck Finn broke the law and thought he was a bad person for doing it, when in fact he was saving Jim. And as we all know, doing the right thing so it's a it's a it's interesting because Jane is absolutely product of her times and that's kind of cool it, you know to be that smart to be that wise and of course at the time she wrote persuasion um that mature 
and able to kind of see things for what they really are and instead of fighting the system, accepting it and figuring out how to live happily within that system, which, oh, what was, we were watching something not too long ago and there was this wonderful moment where some woman who's probably my age looked at some girl and said, oh, it's so, it's so nice to have the ability to be passionate about all the things that are wrong in the world. <laughs> you young whippersnappers, you know, because it's okay for you to, to fight the system and from within or without, but, um, you know, you grow up and you have kids and it's not selling out and it's not caving and it's not becoming the people that, uh, that they talk about in, uh, Phantom Tollbooth who can only see the ground and, and are so adult that they never look up and see beauty around them. In fact, I think having children, at least these days, kind of does the opposite to you. I think you start to notice the world through their eyes a lot more if you're able to slow down a few times a week and, and, and notice. But, um, but it's interesting. Okay, I'm rambling. So I'm going to set you up for, <laughs> for chapters 20 and 21. Well, I've already mentioned the Wickedness that is on its way. There's also um, the Captain Wentworthness that is on its way. There's a, a scene that takes place in public, and if I am not wrong, there's a similar scene in Mansfield Park. I would have to go back and double check that. But um, but this this kind of uh, Rubik's cube of where to sit and who to sit next to and how to behave and how to speak and how not to cross a line in public. I think it's just such a marvelous thing to watch from a distance. I would be so bad at this myself. You can read me like cheap fiction. I mean, even on my face, it's, wow, if I'm horrified by what you're saying, I just can't hide it. So I, I could never pull off what Anne pulls off in, uh, in any of this book. <laughs> But um, but you're gonna you're gonna see some really wonderful machinations going on there, and then in chapter twenty one, which actually the readers split into two parts because chapter twenty one is quite long, all sorts of revelations come tumbling out, and and it's a lot of fun, and it's a lot of fun, and I'm actually going to talk to you a little bit about that at the end of chapter twenty one. So, not to waste any more of your time, here we go with chapter twenty. Of Persuasion by Jane Austen. Chapter 20 Sir Walter, his two daughters, and Mrs. Clay were the earliest of all their party at the rooms in the evening, and as Lady Dalrymple must be waited for, they took their station by one of the fires in the octagon room. But hardly were they so settled when the door opened again, and Captain Wentworth walked in alone. Anne was the nearest to him, and making yet a little advance, she instantly spoke. He was preparing only to bow and pass on, but her gentle, "'How do you do?' brought him out of the straight line to stand near her, and make inquiries in return, in spite of the formidable father and sister in the background. Their being in the background was a support to Anne. She knew nothing of their looks, and felt equal to everything which she believed right to be done. While they were speaking, a whispering between her father and Elizabeth caught her ear. She could not distinguish, but she must guess the subject— and on Captain Wentworth's making a distant bow, she comprehended that her father had judged so well as to give him that simple acknowledgment of acquaintance, 
and she was just in time by a side glance to see a slight curtsy from Elizabeth herself. This, though late and reluctant and ungracious, was yet better than nothing, and her spirits improved. After talking, however, of the weather and Bath and the concert, their conversation began to flag, and so little was said at last that she was expecting him to go every moment. But he did not. He seemed in no hurry to leave her, and presently, with renewed spirit, with a little smile, a little glow, he said, I have hardly seen you since our day at Lyme. I am afraid you must have suffered from the shock, and the more from its not overpowering you at the time. She assured him that she had not. It was a frightful hour, said he, a frightful day, and he passed his hand across his eyes, as if the remembrance were still too painful, but in a moment, half smiling again, added, The day has produced some effects, however, has had some consequences which must be considered as the very reverse of frightful. When you had the presence of mind to suggest that Bennock would be the properest person to fetch a surgeon, you could have little idea of his being eventually one of those most concerned in her recovery. Certainly I could have none. But it appears—I should hope—it would be a very happy match. There are on both sides good principles and good temper. Yes, said he, looking not exactly forward. But there, I think, ends the resemblance. With all my soul I wish them happy, and rejoice over every circumstance in favour of it. They have no difficulties to contend with at home, no opposition, no caprice, no delays. The Musgroves are behaving like themselves, most honourably and kindly, only anxious with true parental hearts to promote their daughter's comfort. All this is much, very much, in favour of their happiness. More than perhaps—he stopped. A sudden recollection seemed to occur, and to give him some taste of that emotion which was reddening Anne's cheeks and fixing her eyes on the ground. After clearing his throat, however, he proceeded thus. I confess that I do think there is a disparity, too great a disparity, and in a point no less essential than mind. I regard Louisa Musgrove as a very amiable, sweet-tempered girl, and not deficient in understanding, but Bennock is something more. He is a clever man, a reading man, and I confess that I do consider his attaching himself to her with some surprise. Had it been the effect of gratitude, had he learnt to love her because he believed her to be preferring him, it would have been another thing. But I have no reason to suppose it so. It seems, on the contrary, to have been a perfectly spontaneous, untaught feeling on his side, and this surprises me. A man like him, in his situation, with a heart pierced, wounded, almost broken. Fanny Harville was a very superior creature and his attachment to her was indeed attachment. A man does not recover from such a devotion of the heart to such a woman. He ought not. He does not. Either from the consciousness, however, that his friend had recovered, or from other consciousness, he went no further. And Anne, who, in spite of the agitated voice in which the latter part had been uttered, and in spite of all the various noises of the room, the almost ceaseless slam of the door, and ceaseless buzz of persons walking through, had distinguished every word, was struck, gratified, confused, and beginning to breathe very quick and feel an hundred things in a moment. It was impossible for her to enter on such a subject, and yet, after a pause, feeling the necessity of speaking, and having not the smallest wish for a total change, she only deviated so far as to say, "'You were a good while at Lyme, I think?' "'About a fortnight. I could not leave it till Louisa's doing well was ascertained.' I had been too deeply concerned in the mischief to be soon at peace. It had been my doing, solely mine. She would not have been obstinate if I had not been weak. The country round Lyme is very fine. I walked and rode a great deal. 
and the more I saw, the more I found to admire. "'I should very much like to see Lyme again,' said Anne. "'Indeed. I should not have supposed that you could have found anything in Lyme to inspire such a feeling. The horror and distress you were involved in, the stretch of mind, the wear of spirits, I should have thought your last impressions of Lyme must have been strong disgust.' "'The last hours were certainly very painful,' replied Anne. "'But when pain is over, the remembrance of it often becomes a pleasure. One does not love a place the less for having suffered in it, unless it has been all suffering, nothing but suffering, which was by no means the case at Lyme. We were only in anxiety and distress during the last two hours, and previously there had been a great deal of enjoyment, so much novelty and beauty. I have travelled so little that every fresh place would be interesting to me, but there is real beauty at Lyme, and in short, with a faint blush at some recollections, altogether my impressions of the place are very agreeable. As she ceased, the entrance door opened again, and the very party appeared for whom they were waiting. "'Lady Dorimple! Lady Dorimple!' was the rejoicing sound, and with all the eagerness compatible with anxious elegance, Sir Walter and his two ladies stepped forward to meet her. Lady Dorimple and Miss Carteret, escorted by Mr. Elliot and Colonel Wallace, who had happened to arrive nearly at the same instant, advanced into the room. The others joined them, and it was a group in which Anne found herself also necessarily included. She was divided from Captain Wentworth. Their interesting, almost too interesting conversation, must be broken up for a time. But slight was the penance compared with the happiness which brought it on. She had learnt, in the last ten minutes, more of his feelings towards Louisa, more of all his feelings, than she dared to think of. And she gave herself up to the demands of the party, to the needful civilities of the moment, with exquisite, though agitated, sensations. She was in good humour with all. She had received ideas which disposed her to be courteous and kind to all, and to pity every one as being less happy than herself. The delightful emotions were a little subdued, when on stepping back from the group to be joined again by Captain Wentworth, she saw that he was gone. She was just in time to see him turn into the concert-room. He was gone. He had disappeared. She felt a moment's regret. But they should meet again. He would look for her. He would find her out before the evening were over, and at present, perhaps, it was as well to be asunder. She was in need of a little interval for recollection. Upon Lady Russell's appearance soon afterwards, the whole party was collected, and all that remained was to marshal themselves and proceed into the concert-room, and be of all the consequence in their power, draw as many eyes, excite as many whispers, and disturb as many people as they could. Very, very happy were both Elizabeth and Anne Elliot as they walked in. Elizabeth, arm in arm with Miss Carteret, and looking on the broad back of the dowager Viscountess Dalrymple before her, had nothing to wish for which did not seem within her reach. And Anne—but it would be an insult to the nature of Anne's felicity to draw any comparison between it and her sisters. The origin of one all selfish vanity, of the other all generous attachment. Anne saw nothing, thought nothing, of the brilliancy of the room. Her happiness was from within— her eyes were bright and her cheeks glowed, but she knew nothing about it. She was thinking only of the last half-hour, and as they passed to their seats, her mind took a hasty range over it. His choice of subjects, his expressions, and still more his manner and look, had been such as she could see in only one light. His opinion of Louisa Musgrove's inferiority, an opinion which he had seemed solicitous to give, his wonder at Captain Benwick, his feelings as to a first strong attachment— Sentences begun which he could not finish, his half-averted eyes and more than half-expressive glance, all, 
all declared that he had a heart returning to her at least, that anger, resentment, avoidance were no more, and that they were succeeded not merely by friendship and regard, but by the tenderness of the past. Yes, some share of the tenderness of the past. She could not contemplate the change as implying less. He must love her. These were thoughts, with their attendant visions, which occupied and flurried her too much to leave her any power of observation. And she passed along the room without having a glimpse of him, without even trying to discern him. When their places were determined on, and they were all properly arranged, she looked round to see if he should happen to be in the same part of the room, but he was not. Her eye could not reach him, and the concert being just opening, she must consent for a time to be happy in a humbler way. The party was divided and disposed of on two contiguous benches. Anne was among those on the foremost, and Mr. Elliot had manoeuvred so well, with the assistance of his friend Colonel Wallace, as to have a seat by her. Miss Elliot, surrounded by her cousins, and the principal object of Colonel Wallace's gallantry, was quite contented. Anne's mind was in a most favourable state for the entertainment of the evening. It was just occupation enough. She had feelings for the tender, spirits for the gay, attention for the scientific, and patience for the wearisome, and had never liked a concert better, at least during the first act. Towards the close of it, in the interval succeeding an Italian song, she explained the words of the song to Mr. Elliot. They had a concert bill between them. This, said she, is nearly the sense, or rather the meaning of the words, for certainly the sense of an Italian love song must not be talked of, but it is as nearly the meaning as I can give, for I do not pretend to understand the language. I am a very poor Italian scholar. Yes, yes, I see you are. I see you know nothing of the matter. You have only knowledge enough of the language to translate at sight these inverted, transposed, curtailed Italian lines into clear, comprehensible, elegant English. You need not say anything more of your ignorance. Here is complete proof. I will not oppose such kind politeness, but I should be sorry to be examined by a real proficient. I have not had the pleasure of visiting in Camden Place so long, replied he, without knowing something of Miss Anne Elliot, and I do regard her as one who is too modest for the world in general to be aware of half her accomplishments, and too highly accomplished for modesty to be natural in any other woman. For shame, for shame, this is too much flattery. I forget what we are to have next, turning to the bill. Perhaps, said Mr. Elliot, speaking low, I have had a longer acquaintance with your character than you are aware of. Indeed? How so? You can have been acquainted with it only since I came to Bath, excepting as you might hear me previously spoken of in my own family. I knew you by report long before you came to Bath. I had heard you described by those who knew you intimately. I have been acquainted with you by character many years. Your person, your disposition, accomplishments, manner, they were all present to me. Mr. Elliot was not disappointed in the interest he hoped to raise. No one can withstand the charm of such a mystery. To have been described long ago to a recent acquaintance by nameless people is irresistible, and Anne was all curiosity. She wondered and questioned him eagerly, but in vain. He delighted in being asked, but he would not tell. No, no. Some time or other, perhaps, but not now. He would mention no names now, but such, he could assure her, had been the fact. He had many years ago received such a description of Miss Anne Elliot as had inspired him with the highest idea of her merit, and excited the warmest curiosity to know her. Anne could think of no one so likely to have spoken with partiality of her many years ago as the Mr. Wentworth of Monkford, Captain Wentworth's brother. He might have been in Mr. Elliot's company, but she had not courage to ask the question. The name of Anne Elliot, said he, has long had an interesting sound to me. 
Very long has it possessed a charm over my fancy, and if I dared, I would breathe my wishes that the name might never change. Such, she believed, were his words, but scarcely had she received their sound than her attention was caught by other sounds immediately behind her, which rendered everything else trivial. Her father and Lady Dorimple were speaking. A well-looking man, said Sir Walter, a very well-looking man. A very fine young man indeed, said Lady Dorimple. More air than one often sees in Bath. Irish, I dare say. No, I just know his name, a bang acquaintance. Wentworth, Captain Wentworth of the Navy. His sister married my tenant in Somersetshire, the Croft who rents Kellynch. Before Sir Walter had reached this point, Anne's eyes had caught the right direction, and distinguished Captain Wentworth standing among a cluster of men at a little distance. As her eyes fell on him, his seemed to be withdrawn from her. It had that appearance. It seemed as if she had been one moment too late, and as long as she dared observe, he did not look again. But the performance was recommencing, and she was forced to seem to restore her attention to the orchestra and look straight forward. When she could give another glance, he had moved away. He could not have come nearer to her if he would. She was so surrounded and shut in, but she would rather have caught his eye. Mr. Elliot's speech, too, distressed her. She had no longer any inclination to talk to him. She wished him not so near her. The first act was over. Now she hoped for some beneficial change, and after a period of nothing saying amongst the party, some of them did decide on going in quest of tea. Anne was one of the few who did not choose to move. She remained in her seat, and so did Lady Russell, but she had the pleasure of getting rid of Mr. Elliot, and she did not mean, whatever she might feel on Lady Russell's account, to shrink from conversation with Captain Wentworth if he gave her the opportunity. She was persuaded by Lady Russell's countenance that she had seen him. He did not come, however. Anne sometimes fancied she discerned him at a distance, but he never came. The anxious interval wore away unproductively. The others returned, the room filled again, benches were reclaimed and repossessed, and another hour of pleasure or of penance was to be sat out. Another hour of music was to give delight or the gapes, as real or affected taste for it prevailed. To Anne it chiefly wore the prospect of an hour of agitation. She could not quit that room in peace without seeing Captain Wentworth once more, without the interchange of one friendly look. In resettling themselves there were now many changes, the result of which was favourable for her. Colonel Wallace declined sitting down again, and Mr. Elliot was invited by Elizabeth and Miss Cartwright, in a manner not to be refused, to sit between them, and by some other removals, and a little scheming of her own, Anne was enabled to place herself much nearer the end of the bench than she had been before, much more within reach of a passer-by. She could not do so without comparing herself with Miss Larolle, the inimitable Miss Larolle, but still she did it, and not with much happier effect though by what seemed prosperity in the shape of an early abdication in her next neighbours, she found herself at the very end of the bench before the concert closed. Such was her situation, with a vacant space at hand, when Captain Wentworth was again in sight. She saw him not far off, he saw her too, yet he looked grave and seemed irresolute, and only by very slow degrees came at last near enough to speak to her. She felt that something must be the matter. The change was indubitable. The difference between his present air and what it had been in the octagon room was strikingly clear. Why was it? She thought of her father, of Lady Russell. Could there have been any unpleasant glances? He began by speaking of the concert gravely, more like the Captain Wentworth of Uppercross, owned himself disappointed, had expected singing, 
and in short must confess that he should not be sorry when it was over. Anne replied and spoke in defence of the performance so well, and yet in allowance for his feelings so pleasantly, that his countenance improved, and he replied again with almost a smile. They talked for a few minutes more, the improvement held, he even looked down towards the bench as if he saw a place on it well worth occupying, when at that moment a touch on her shoulder obliged Anne to turn around. It came from Mr. Elliot. He begged her pardon, but she must be applied to to explain Italian again. Miss Carteret was very anxious to have a general idea of what was next to be sung. Anne could not refuse, but never had she sacrificed her politeness with a more suffering spirit. A few minutes, though as few as possible, were inevitably consumed. And when her own mistress again, when able to turn and look as she had done before, she found herself accosted by Captain Wentworth in a reserved yet hurried sort of farewell. He must wish her good night. He was going. He should get home as fast as he could. Is not this song worth staying for? said Anne, suddenly struck by an idea which made her yet more anxious to be encouraging. No, he replied impressively. There is nothing worth my staying for. And he was gone directly. Jealousy of Mr. Elliot. It was the only intelligible motive. Captain Wentworth jealous of her affection. Could she have believed it a week ago, three hours ago? For a moment the gratification was exquisite. But alas, there were very different thoughts to succeed. How was such jealousy to be quieted? How was the truth to reach him? How, in all the peculiar disadvantages of their respective situations, would he ever learn of her real sentiments? It was misery to think of Mr. Elliot's attentions. Their evil was incalculable. End of chapter 20 Chapter 21, Part 1 Anne recollected with pleasure the next morning her promise of going to Mrs. Smith, meaning that it should engage her from home at the time when Mr. Elliot would be most likely to call, for to avoid Mr. Elliot was almost a first object. She felt a great deal of goodwill towards him. In spite of the mischief of his attentions, she owed him gratitude and regard, perhaps compassion. She could not help thinking much of the extraordinary circumstances attending their acquaintance, of the right which he seemed to have to interest her by everything in situation, by his own sentiments, by his early prepossession. It was altogether very extraordinary, flattering but painful. There was much to regret. How she might have felt had there been no Captain Wentworth in the case was not worth inquiry, for there was a Captain Wentworth and be the conclusion of the present suspense good or bad, her affection would be his forever. Their union, she believed, could not divide her more from other men than their final separation. Pretty amusings of high-wrought love and eternal constancy could never have passed along the streets of Bath than Anne was sporting with from Camden Place to Westgate Buildings. It was almost enough to spread purification and perfume all the way. She was sure of a pleasant reception, and her friend seemed this morning particularly obliged to her for coming, seemed hardly to have expected her, though it had been an appointment. An account of the concert was immediately claimed, and Anne's recollections of the concert were quite happy enough to animate her features and make her rejoice to talk of it. All that she could tell she told most gladly, but the all was little for one who had been there, and unsatisfactory for such an inquirer as Mrs. Smith, who had already heard— through the short-cut of a laundress and a waiter, rather more of the general success and produce of the evening than Anne could relate, and who now asked in vain for several particulars of the company. Everybody of any consequence or notoriety in Bath was well known by name to Mrs. Smith. 
The little Durands were there, I conclude, she said, with their mouths open to catch the music, like unfledged sparrows ready to be fed. They never miss a concert. Yes, I did not see them myself, but I heard Mr. Elliot say they were in the room. The Ibbotsons, were they there? And the two new beauties, with the tall Irish officer who is talked of for one of them? I do not know. I do not think they were. Old Lady Mary MacLean? I need not ask after her. She never misses, I know, and you must have seen her. She must have been in your own circle, for as you went with Lady Dorimple, you were in the seats of grandeur round the orchestra, of course. No, that was what I dreaded. It would have been very unpleasant to me in every respect. But happily, Lady Dorimple always chooses to be farther off, and we were exceedingly well placed, that is, for hearing. I must not say for seeing, because I appear to have seen very little. Oh, you saw enough for your own amusement, I can understand. There is a sort of domestic enjoyment to be known even in a crowd, and this you had. You were a large party in yourselves, and you wanted nothing beyond. But I ought to have looked about me more, said Anne, conscious while she spoke, that there had in fact been no want of looking about, that the object only had been deficient. No, no, you were better employed. You need not tell me that you had a pleasant evening. I see it in your eye. I perfectly see how the hours passed, that you always had something agreeable to listen to. In the intervals of the concert it was conversation. Anne half smiled and said, Do you see that in my eye? Yes, I do. Your countenance perfectly informs me that you were in company last night with the person whom you think the most agreeable in the world, the person who interests you at this present time more than all the rest of the world put together. A blush overspread Anne's cheeks. She could say nothing. And such being the case, continued Mrs. Smith after a short pause, I hope you believe that I do know how to value your kindness in coming to me this morning. It is really very good of you to come and sit with me, when you must have so many pleasanter demands upon your time. Anne heard nothing of this. She was still in astonishment and confusion, excited by her friend's penetration, unable to imagine how any report of Captain Wentworth could have reached her. After another short silence, Pray, said Mrs. Smith, is Mr. Elliot aware of your acquaintance with me? Does he know that I am in Bath? Mr. Elliot, replied Anne, looking up surprised. A moment's reflection showed her the mistake she had been under. She caught it instantaneously, and recovering her courage with the feeling of safety, soon added more composedly, Are you acquainted with Mr. Elliot? I have been a good deal acquainted with him, replied Mrs. Smith gravely, but it seems worn out now. It is a great while since we met. I was not at all aware of this. You never mentioned it before. Had I known it, I would have had the pleasure of talking to him about you. To confess the truth, said Mrs. Smith, assuming her usual air of cheerfulness, that is exactly the pleasure I want you to have. I want you to talk about me to Mr. Elliot. I want your interest with him. He can be of essential service to me, and if you would have the goodness, my dear Miss Elliot, to make it an object to yourself, of course it is done. I should be extremely happy. I hope you cannot doubt my willingness to be of even the slightest use to you, replied Anne, but I suspect that you are considering me as having a higher claim on Mr. Elliot, a greater right to influence him, than is really the case. I am sure you have, somehow or other, imbibed such a notion. You must consider me only as Mr. Elliot's relation. If, in that light, there is anything which you suppose his cousin might fairly ask of him, I beg you would not hesitate to employ me. Mrs. Smith gave her a penetrating glance, and then, smiling, said, "'I have been a little premature, I perceive. I beg your pardon. I ought to have waited for official information. 
But now, my dear Miss Elliot, as an old friend, do give me a hint as to when I may speak. Next week? To be sure, by next week I may be allowed to think it all settled, and build my own selfish schemes on Mr. Elliot's good fortune. No, replied Anne, nor next week, nor next, nor next. I assure you that nothing of the sort you are thinking of will be settled any week. I am not going to marry Mr. Elliot. I should like to know why you imagine I am. Mrs. Smith looked at her again, looked earnestly, smiled, shook her head, and exclaimed, Now how I do wish I understood you! How I do wish I knew what you were at! I have a great idea that you do not design to be cruel when the right moment occurs. Till it does come, you know, we women never mean to have anybody. It is a thing of course among us that every man is refused till he offers. But why should you be cruel? Let me plead for my present friend, I cannot call him, but for my former friend. Where can you look for a more suitable match? Where could you expect a more gentlemanlike, agreeable man? Let me recommend Mr. Elliot. I am sure you hear nothing but good of him from Colonel Wallace, and who can know him better than Colonel Wallace? My dear Mrs. Smith, Mr. Elliot's wife has not been dead much above half a year. He ought not to be supposed to be paying his addresses to any one. Oh, if these are your only objections, cried Mrs. Smith archly, Mr. Elliot is safe, and I shall give myself no more trouble about him. Do not forget me when you are married, that's all. Let him know me to be a friend of yours, and then he will think little of the trouble required, which it is very natural for him now, with so many affairs and engagements of his own, to avoid and get rid of as he can. Very natural, perhaps. Ninety-nine out of a hundred would do the same. Of course, he cannot be aware of the importance to me. Well, my dear Miss Elliot, I hope and trust you will be very happy. Mr. Elliot has sense to understand the value of such a woman. Your peace will not be shipwrecked as mine has been. You are safe in all worldly matters, and safe in his character. He will not be led astray. He will not be misled by others to his ruin. No, said Anne, I can readily believe all that of my cousin. He seems to have a calm, decided temper, not at all open to dangerous impressions. I consider him with great respect. I have no reason, from anything that has fallen within my observation, to do otherwise. But I have not known him long, and he is not a man, I think, to be known intimately soon. Will not this manner of speaking of him, Mrs. Smith, convince you that he is nothing to me? Surely this must be calm enough, and upon my word he is nothing to me. Should he ever propose to me, which I have very little reason to imagine he has any thought of doing, I shall not accept him. I assure you I shall not. I assure you Mr. Elliot had not the share which you have been supposing in whatever pleasure the concert of last night might afford. Not Mr. Elliot. It is not Mr. Elliot that— She stopped, regretting with a deep blush that she had implied so much. But less would hardly have been sufficient. Mrs. Smith would hardly have believed so soon in Mr. Elliot's failure, but from the perception of there being a somebody else. As it was, she instantly submitted, and with all the semblance of seeing nothing beyond, and Anne, eager to escape farther notice, was impatient to know why Mrs. Smith should have fancied she was to marry Mr. Elliot, where she could have received the idea, or from whom she could have heard it. "'Do tell me how it first came into your head.' "'It first came into my head,' replied Mrs. Smith, "'upon finding how much you were together, and feeling it to be the most probable thing in the world to be wished for by everybody belonging to either of you.' and you may depend upon it that all your acquaintance have disposed of you in the same way. But I never heard it spoken of till two days ago. 
And has it indeed been spoken of? Did you observe the woman who opened the door to you when you called yesterday? No. Was it not Mrs. Speed as usual, or the maid? I observed no one in particular. It was my friend Mrs. Rook, Nurse Rook, who, by the by, had a great curiosity to see you, and was delighted to be in the way to let you in. She came away from Marlborough Buildings only on Sunday, and she it was who told me you were to marry Mr. Elliot. She had had it from Mrs. Wallace herself, which did not seem bad authority. She sat an hour with me on Monday evening, and gave me the whole history. The whole history, repeated Anne, laughing. She could not make a very long history, I think, of one such little article of unfounded news. Mrs. Smith said nothing. But, continued Anne presently, though there is no truth in my having this claim on Mr. Elliot, I should be extremely happy to be of use to you in any way that I could. Shall I mention to him your being in Bath? Shall I take any message? No, I thank you. No, certainly not. In the warmth of the moment, and under a mistaken impression, I might, perhaps, have endeavoured to interest you in some circumstances, but not now. No, I thank you. I have nothing to trouble you with. I think you spoke of having known Mr. Elliot many years. I did. Not before he was married, I suppose. Yes, he was not married when I knew him first. And you were much acquainted? Intimately. Indeed. Then do tell me what he was at that time of life. I have a great curiosity to know what Mr. Elliot was as a very young man. Was he at all such as he appears now? I have not seen Mr. Elliot these three years, was Mrs. Smith's answer, given so gravely that it was impossible to pursue the subject farther. And Anne felt that she had gained nothing but an increase of curiosity. They were both silent. Mrs. Smith very thoughtful. At last, I beg your pardon, my dear Miss Elliot, she cried in her natural tone of cordiality. I beg your pardon for the short answers I have been giving you, but I have been uncertain what I ought to do. I have been doubting and considering as to what I ought to tell you. There were many things to be taken into the account. One hates to be officious, to be giving bad impressions, making mischief. Even the smooth surface of family union seems worth preserving, though there may be nothing durable beneath. However, I have determined. I think I am right. I think you ought to be made acquainted with Mr. Elliot's real character. Though I fully believe that, at present, you have not the smallest intention of accepting him, there is no saying what may happen. You might, some time or other, be differently affected towards him. Hear the truth, therefore, now, while you are unprejudiced. Mr. Elliot is a man without heart or conscience, a designing, wary, cold-blooded being who thinks only of himself, whom, for his own interest or ease, would be guilty of any cruelty or any treachery that could be perpetrated without risk of his general character. He has no feeling for others. Those whom he has been the chief cause of leading into ruin, he can neglect and desert without the smallest compunction. He is totally beyond the reach of any sentiment of justice or compassion. Oh, he is black at heart, hollow and black. Anne's astonished air and exclamation of wonder made her pause, and in a calmer manner she added, My expressions startle you. You must allow for an injured, angry woman. But I will try to command myself. I will not abuse him. I will only tell you what I have found him. Facts shall speak. He was the intimate friend of my dear husband, who trusted and loved him, and thought him as good as himself. The intimacy had been formed before our marriage. 
I found them most intimate friends, and I too became excessively pleased with Mr. Elliot, and entertained the highest opinion of him. At nineteen, you know, one does not think very seriously. But Mr. Elliot appeared to me quite as good as others, and much more agreeable than most others, and we were almost always together. We were principally in town, living in very good style. He was then the inferior in circumstances. He was then the poor one. He had chambers in the temple, and it was as much as he could do to support the appearance of a gentleman. He had always a home with us whenever he chose it. He was always welcome. He was like a brother. My poor Charles, who had the finest, most generous spirit in the world, would have divided his last farthing with him, and I know that his purse was open to him. I know that he often assisted him. This must have been about that very period of Mr. Elliot's life, said Anne, which has always excited my particular curiosity. It must have been about the same time that he became known to my father and sister. I never knew him myself. I only heard of him. But there was a something in his conduct then with regard to my father and sister, and afterwards in the circumstances of his marriage, which I never could quite reconcile with present times. It seemed to announce a different sort of man. I know it all. I know it all, cried Mrs. Smith. He had been introduced to Sir Walter and your sister before I was acquainted with him, but I heard him speak of them forever. I know he was invited and encouraged, and I know he did not choose to go. I can satisfy you, perhaps, on points which you would little expect. And as to his marriage, I knew all about it at the time. I was privy to all the fors and againsts. I was the friend to whom he confided his hopes and plans. And though I did not know his wife previously, her inferior situation in society indeed rendered that impossible, yet I knew her all her life afterwards, or at least till within the last two years of her life, and can answer any question you may wish to put. Nay, said Anne, I have no particular inquiry to make about her. I have always understood they were not a happy couple. But I should like to know why, at that time of his life, he should slight my father's acquaintance as he did. My father was certainly disposed to take very kind and proper notice of him. Why did Mr. Elliot draw back? Mr. Elliot, replied Mrs. Smith, at that period of his life, had one object in view, to make his fortune, and by a rather quicker process than the law. He was determined to make it by marriage. He was determined at least not to mar it by an imprudent marriage. And I know it was his belief, whether justly or not, of course, I cannot decide, that your father and sister, in their civilities and invitations, were designing a match between the heir and the young lady, and it was impossible that such a match could have answered his ideas of wealth and independence. That was his motive for drawing back, I can assure you. He told me the whole story. He had no concealments with me. It was curious that having just left you behind me in Bath, my first and principal acquaintance on marrying should be your cousin, and that through him, I should be continually hearing of your father and sister. He described one Miss Elliot, and I thought very affectionately of the other. Perhaps, cried Anne, struck by a sudden idea, you sometimes spoke of me to Mr. Elliot? To be sure I did, very often. I used to boast of my own Anne Elliot, and vouch for your being a very different creature from— She checked herself just in time. This accounts for something which Mr. Elliot said last night, cried Anne. This explains it. I found he had been used to hear of me. I could not comprehend how. What wild imaginations one forms where dear self is concerned. How sure to be mistaken. But I beg your pardon, I have interrupted you. Mr. Elliot married then completely for money? The circumstances probably which first opened your eyes to his character. 
Mrs. Smith hesitated a little here. Oh, those things are too common. When one lives in the world, a man or woman's marrying for money is too common to strike one as it ought. I was very young and associated only with the young, and we were a thoughtless, gay set without any strict rules of conduct. We lived for enjoyment. I think differently now. Time and sickness and sorrow have given me other notions, but at that period I must own I saw nothing reprehensible in what Mr. Elliot was doing. To do the best for himself passed as a duty. End of chapter twenty one, part one. Chapter twenty one, part two. But was she not a very low woman? Yes, which I objected to, but he would not regard. Money. Money was all he wanted. Her father was a grazier, her grandfather had been a butcher, but that was all nothing. She was a fine woman, had had a decent education, was brought forward by some cousins, thrown by chance into Mr. Elliot's company, and fell in love with him. And not a difficulty or a scruple was there on his side with respect to her birth. All his caution was spent in being secured of the real amount of her fortune before he committed himself. Depend upon it. Whatever esteem Mr. Elliot may have for his own situation in life now, as a young man he had not the smallest value for it. His chance for the Kellynch estate was something, but all the honour of the family he held as cheap as dirt. I have often heard him declare that if Baronet C's were saleable, anybody should have his for fifty pounds, arms and motto, name and livery included. But I will not pretend to repeat half that I used to hear him say on that subject. It would not be fair. And yet, you ought to have proof. For what is all this but assertion? And you shall have proof. Indeed, my dear Mrs. Smith, I want none, cried Anne. You have asserted nothing contradictory to what Mr. Elliot appeared to be some years ago. This is all confirmation, rather, of what we used to hear and believe. I am more curious to know why he should be so different now. But, for my satisfaction, if you will have the goodness to ring for Mary, stay, I am sure you will have the still greater goodness of going yourself into my bedroom, and bringing me the small inlaid box which you will find on the upper shelf of the closet. Anne, seeing her friend to be earnestly bent on it, did as she was desired. The box was brought and placed before her, and Mrs. Smith, sighing over it as she unlocked it, said, This is full of papers belonging to him, to my husband, a small portion only of what I had to look over when I lost him. The letter I am looking for was written by Mr. Elliot to him before our marriage, and happened to be save, why one can hardly imagine. But he was careless and immethodical, like other men about those things, and when I came to examine his papers, I found it with others still more trivial, from different people scattered here and there, while many letters and memorandums of real importance had been destroyed. Here it is. I would not burn it, because being even then very little satisfied with Mr. Elliot, I was determined to preserve every document of former intimacy. I have now another motive for being glad that I can produce it. This was the letter, directed to Charles Smith, Esquire, Tunbridge Wells, and dated from London, as far back as July 1803. Dear Smith, I have received yours. Your kindness almost overpowers me. I wish nature had made such hearts as yours more common, but I have lived three and twenty years in the world, and have seen none like it. At present, believe me, I have no need of your services, being in cash again. Give me joy. I have got rid of Sir Walter and Miss. They are gone back to Kellynch, and almost made me swear to visit them this summer. But my first visit to Kellynch will be with a surveyor, to tell me how to bring it with best advantage to the hammer. 
The baronet, nevertheless, is not unlikely to marry again. He is quite fool enough. If he does, however, they will leave me in peace, which may be a decent equivalent for the reversion. He is worse than last year. I wish I had any name but Elliot. I am sick of it. The name of Walter I can drop, thank God, and I desire you will never insult me with my second W again, meaning for the rest of my life to be only yours truly, William Elliot. Such a letter could not be read without putting Anne in a glow, and Mrs. Smith, observing the high colour in her face, said, The language I know is highly disrespectful. Though I have forgot the exact terms, I have a perfect impression of the general meaning, but it shows you the man. Mark his professions to my poor husband. Can anything be stronger? Anne could not immediately get over the shock and mortification of finding such words applied to her father. She was obliged to recollect that her seeing the letter was a violation of the laws of honour, that no one ought to be judged or to be known by such testimonies, that no private correspondence could bear the eye of others, before she could recover calmness enough to return the letter which she had been meditating over and say, Thank you. This is full proof, undoubtedly, proof of everything you were saying. But why be acquainted with us now? I can explain this too, cried Mrs. Smith, smiling. Can you really? Yes. I have shown you Mr. Elliot as he was a dozen years ago, and I will show you him as he is now. I cannot produce written proof again, but I can give as authentic oral testimony as you can desire of what he is now wanting and what he is now doing. He is no hypocrite now. He truly wants to marry you. His present attentions to your family are very sincere, quite from the heart. I will give you my authority. His friend, Colonel Wallace. Colonel Wallace? You were acquainted with him? No. It does not come to me in quite so direct a line as that. It takes a bend or two, but nothing of consequence. The stream is as good as at first. The little rubbish it collects in the turnings is easily moved away. Mr. Elliot talks unreservedly to Colonel Wallace of his views on you which said Colonel Wallace, I imagine to be in himself, a sensible, careful, discerning sort of character. But Colonel Wallace has a very pretty, silly wife, to whom he tells things which he had better not, and he repeats it all to her. She, in the overflowing spirits of her recovery, repeats it all to her nurse, and the nurse, knowing my acquaintance with you, very naturally brings it all to me. On Monday evening, my good friend Mrs. Rook led me thus much into the secrets of Marlborough Buildings. When I talked of a whole history, therefore, you see I was not romancing so much as you supposed. My dear Mrs. Smith, your authority is deficient. This will not do. Mr. Elliot's having any views on me will not in the least account for the efforts he made towards a reconciliation with my father. That was all prior to my coming to Bath. I found them on the most friendly terms when I arrived. I know you did. I know it all perfectly, but— Indeed, Mrs. Smith, we must not expect to get real information in such a line. Facts or opinions which are to pass through the hands of so many, to be misconceived by folly in one and ignorance in another, can hardly have much truth left. Only give me a hearing. You will soon be able to judge of the general credit due by listening to some particulars which you can yourself immediately contradict or confirm. Nobody supposes that you were his first inducement. He had seen you indeed before he came to Bath, and admired you, but without knowing it to be you. So says my historian, at least. Is this true? Did he see you last summer or autumn, somewhere down in the west, to use her own words, without knowing it to be you? He certainly did. So far it is very true. At Lyme. I happen to be at Lyme. Well, continued Mrs. Smith triumphantly, grant my friend the credit due to the establishment of the first point asserted. 
He saw you then at Lyme, and liked you so well as to be exceedingly pleased to meet with you again in Camden Place, as Miss Anne Elliot, and from that moment, I have no doubt, had a double motive in his visits there. But there was another, and an earlier, which I will now explain. If there is anything in my story which you know to be either false or improbable, stop me. My account states that your sister's friend, the lady now staying with you, whom I have heard you mention, came to Bath with Miss Elliot and Sir Walter as long ago as September, in short, when they first came themselves, and has been staying there ever since, that she is a clever, insinuating, handsome woman, poor and plausible, and altogether such in situation and manner as to give a general idea among Sir Walter's acquaintance of her meaning to be Lady Elliot, and as a general surprise that Miss Elliot should be apparently blind to the danger. Here Mrs. Smith paused a moment, but Anne had not a word to say, and she continued. This was the light in which it appeared to those who knew the family long before you returned to it, and Colonel Wallace had his eye upon your father enough to be sensible of it, though he did not then visit in Campton Place. But his regard for Mr. Elliot gave him an interest in watching all that was going on there, and when Mr. Elliot came to Bath for a day or two, as he happened to do a little before Christmas, Colonel Wallace made him acquainted with the appearance of things, and the reports beginning to prevail. Now you are to understand that the time had worked a very material change in Mr. Elliot's opinions as to the value of the baronetcy. Upon all points of blood and connection he is a completely altered man. Having long had as much money as he could spend, nothing to wish for on the side of avarice or indulgence, he has been gradually learning to pin his happiness upon the consequence he is heir to. I thought it coming on before our acquaintance ceased, but it is now a confirmed feeling. He cannot bear the idea of not being Sir William. You may guess, therefore, that the news he heard from his friend could not be very agreeable, and you may guess what it produced. The resolution of coming back to Bath as soon as possible, and of fixing himself here for a time, with the view of renewing his former acquaintance, and recovering such a footing in the family as might give him the means of ascertaining the degree of his danger, and of circumventing the lady if he found it material. This was agreed upon between the two friends as the only thing to be done, and Colonel Wallace was to assist in every way that he could. He was to be introduced, and Mrs. Wallace was to be introduced, and everybody was to be introduced. Mr. Elliot came back accordingly, and on application was forgiven, as you know, and readmitted into the family. And there it was his constant object, and his only object, till your arrival added another motive, to watch Sir Walter and Mrs. Clay. He omitted no opportunity of being with them, threw himself in their way, called at all hours, but I need not be particular on this subject. You can imagine what an artful man would do, and with this guide, perhaps, may recollect what you have seen him do. Yes, said Anne, you tell me nothing which does not accord with what I have known, or could imagine. There is always something offensive in the details of cunning. The manoeuvres of selfishness and duplicity must ever be revolting, but I have heard nothing which really surprises me. I know those who would be shocked by such a representation of Mr. Elliot, who would have difficulty in believing it, but I have never been satisfied. I have always wanted some other motive for his conduct than appeared. I should like to know his present opinion as to the probability of the event he has been in dread of, whether he considers the danger to be lessening or not. Lessening, I understand, replied Mrs. Smith. He thinks Mrs. Clay afraid of him, aware that he sees through her, and not daring to proceed as she might do in his absence. But since he must be absent some time or other, 
I do not perceive how he can ever be secure while she holds her present influence. Mrs. Wallace has an amusing idea, as Nurse tells me, that it is to be put into the marriage articles when you and Mr. Elliot marry, that your father is not to marry Mrs. Clay. A scheme worthy of Mrs. Wallace's understanding, by all accounts. But my sensible Nurse Rook sees the absurdity of it. Why, to be sure, ma'am, she said, it would not prevent his marrying anybody else. And indeed, to own the truth, I do not think Nurse, in her heart, is a very strenuous opposer of Sir Walter's making a second match. She must be allowed to be a favour of matrimony, you know. And, since self will intrude, who can say that she may not have some flying visions of attending the next Lady Elliot through Mrs. Wallace's recommendation? I am very glad to know all this, said Anne, after a little thoughtfulness. It will be more painful to me in some respects to be in company with him, but I shall know better what to do. My line of conduct will be more direct. Mr. Elliot is evidently a disingenuous, artificial, worldly man, who has never had any better principle to guide him than selfishness. But Mr. Elliot was not done with. Mrs. Smith had been carried away from her first direction, and Anne had forgotten, in the interest of her own family concerns, how much had been originally implied against him. But her attention was now called to the explanation of those first hints, and she listened to a recital which, if it did not perfectly justify the unqualified bitterness of Mrs. Smith, proved him to have been very unfeeling in his conduct towards her very deficient both in justice and compassion. She learned that, the intimacy between them continuing unimpaired by Mr. Elliot's marriage, they had been as before always together, and Mr. Elliot had led his friend into expenses much beyond his fortune. Mrs. Smith did not want to take blame to herself, and was most tender of throwing any on her husband, but Anne could collect that their income had never been equal to their style of living, and that from the first there had been a great deal of general and joint extravagance. From his wife's account of him, she could discern Mr. Smith to have been a man of warm feelings, easy temper, careless habits, and not strong understanding, much more amiable than his friend, and very unlike him, led by him, and probably despised by him. Mr. Elliot, raised by his marriage to great affluence, and disposed to every gratification of pleasure and vanity which could be commanded without involving himself, for with all his self-indulgence he had become a prudent man, and beginning to be rich, just as his friend ought to have found himself to be poor, seemed to have had no concern at all for that friend's probable finances, but on the contrary, had been prompting and encouraging expenses which could only end in ruin, and the Smiths accordingly had been ruined. The husband had died just in time to be spared the full knowledge of it. They had previously known embarrassments enough to try the friendship of their friends, and to prove that Mr. Elliot's had better not be tried. But it was not till his death that the wretched state of his affairs was fully known. With the confidence in Mr. Elliot's regard, more creditable to his feelings than his judgment, Mr. Smith had appointed him the executor of his will. But Mr. Elliot would not act, and the difficulties and distress which this refusal had heaped on her, in addition to the inevitable sufferings of her situation, had been such as could not be related without anguish of spirit, or listened to without corresponding indignation. Anne was shown some letters of his on the occasion, answers to urgent applications from Mrs. Smith, which all breathed the same stern resolution of not engaging in a fruitless trouble, and under a cold civility, the same hard-hearted indifference to any of the evils it might bring on her. It was a dreadful picture of ingratitude and inhumanity, and Anne felt, at some moments, that no flagrant open crime could have been worse. She had a great deal to listen to, all the particulars of past sad scenes, 
all the minutiae of distress upon distress, which in former conversations had been merely hinted at, were dwelt on now with a natural indulgence. Anne could perfectly comprehend the exquisite relief, and was only the more inclined to wonder at the composure of her friend's usual state of mind. There was one circumstance in the history of her grievances of particular irritation. She had good reason to believe that some property of her husband in the West Indies, which had been for many years under a sort of sequestration for the payment of its own encumbrances, might be recoverable by proper measures, and this property, though not large, would be enough to make her comparatively rich. But there was nobody to stir in it. Mr. Elliot would do nothing, and she could do nothing herself, equally disabled from personal exertion by her state of bodily weakness, and from employing others by her want of money. She had no natural connections to assist her, even with their counsel, and she could not afford to purchase the assistance of the law. This was a cruel aggravation of actually straitened means, to feel that she ought to be in better circumstances, that a little trouble in the right place might do it, and to fear that delay might be even weakening her claims, was hard to bear. It was on this point that she had hoped to engage Anne's good offices with Mr. Elliot. She had previously, in the anticipation of their marriage, been very apprehensive of losing her friend by it, but on being assured that he could have made no attempt of that nature, since he did not even know her to be in Bath, it immediately occurred that something might be done in her favour by the influence of the woman he loved, and she had been hastily preparing to interest Anne's feelings, as far as the observances due to Mr. Elliot's character would allow, when Anne's refutation of the supposed engagement changed the face of everything, and while it took from her the new-formed hope of succeeding in the object of her first anxiety, left her at least the comfort of telling the whole story her own way. After listening to this full description of Mr. Elliot, Anne could not but express some surprise at Mrs. Smith's having spoken of him so favourably in the beginning of their conversation. She had seemed to recommend and praise him. "'My dear,' was Mrs. Smith's reply, "'there was nothing else to be done. I considered your marrying him as certain, though he might not yet have made the offer, and I could no more speak the truth of him than if he had been your husband. My heart bled for you as I talked of happiness. And yet he is sensible, he is agreeable, and with such a woman as you— it was not absolutely hopeless. He was very unkind to his first wife. They were wretched together. But she was too ignorant and giddy for respect, and he had never loved her. I was willing to hope that you must fare better. Anne could just acknowledge within herself such a possibility of having been induced to marry him as made her shudder at the idea of the misery which must have followed. It was just possible that she might have been persuaded by Lady Russell, and under such a supposition— which would have been most miserable when time had disclosed all too late. It was very desirable that Lady Russell should be no longer deceived, and one of the concluding arrangements of this important conference, which carried them through the greater part of the morning, was that Anne had full liberty to communicate to her friend everything relative to Mrs. Smith in which his conduct was involved. End of chapter 21 Shocking revelations? No... So that's our little Wickham moment, and uh, and a fairly brutal one at that. I mean, it's it's not just oh he ran off with someone, you know. He was mean to his first wife. He's horrible, horrible, and horrible to Miss Smith. And what did she ever do to him? And uh, I just can't stand it. If Sir Walter weren't bad enough, the next in line to the throne, as it were, is just as bad, if not worse, much worse, actually. 
horribly worse. But that just puts things in better for Captain Wentworth, doesn't it? Have a great week. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Please remember to support the people who support Craftlit. Visit Knitting Out Loud, Listen While You Knit, and Knit Circus Online Magazine, offering three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can check out the fun spring issue at www.knitcircus.com. And please visit the blogs and sites of Craftlit supporters. Those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes. The show notes can be found at craftlit.com. Craftlit can also be accessed by its own iPhone application. You can purchase it at the iPhone or iTouch application store, or you can subscribe free at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.